There's a certain way you want to live with a certain kind of flair. There's songs to sing, dreams to dream when spring is in the air. And Eaton's tries to do things the way you want us to. Because Eaton's idea, Eaton's idea, Eaton's idea is all about you. Hi. I'm Theo Finnegan from the English Department at Vancouver Island University. Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. We introduce you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU and share stories about events and projects happening on campus. Catherine Rollwagon's research examines the social and cultural influence of corporate entities, from her current work on the economic and social impacts of consumer culture on youth, to earlier research on notions of gender, class, and community in Canadian company towns. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Ottawa and an MA in history from the University of Victoria. Previously, she was an L.R. Wilson assistant professor at the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University and a Shirk postdoctoral scholar. You can follow her on Twitter at KT Rollwagon. On Friday, November 26th from 10 till 11.30, Dr. Rollwagon will give a presentation titled The Store for Young Canada, Fashioning the Teenage Consumer at Eaton's Department Stores. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me. Nice to talk to you, Theo. Could you start by telling me a little bit about your career path? So, and I'm interested in a couple of things. So how did you get interested in history? Like maybe like in a broader sense, like were were you younger or, you know, how was history a thing that you got interested in? And then secondly, how did you kind of arrive at VIU? What was that story? So, I got interested in history, I think at a fairly young age, I was attracted to uh, historical fiction as a teenager. Um, and um, particularly stories about um, young people who were involved in the resistance during the Second World War, as well as stories of uh, slavery. So, for example, Barbara Smucker's book, Underground to Canada, was one that, that influenced me quite a bit. And then, to be honest, in high school, I was really interested in science. I was going to be a, um, a drug researcher. That was my big thing. But when I got to, uh, to university, I found that the, the questions that interested me the most seemed to be the historical ones, the ones that involved change over time and understanding um, how certain aspects of our society developed and why, who gets to decide, you know, why things look the way they do. And also representation is another big uh, so in terms of like a lot of a lot of my research, I realized kind of in hindsight, I don't think I did this on purpose, looks at the way that certain people are represented or or um, the rhetorical strategies and visual strategies that are used to present the world in a certain way. Um, how I got to VIU, basically, uh, there was a job opening and I applied for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, that's, I mean, it, it, it's funny because I did actually do two years of my undergraduate degree, my BA, as well as my master's in history at the University of Victoria. 
And as graduate students in history, we, we would sometimes, me and my, my classmates and I would sometimes discuss, like, you know, where would we like to end up? Did we want to work in a civil, as civil servants? Did we want to do research independently? Um, did we want to be professors of history? That was kind of, you know, the ultimate uh, goal for most of us. Um, and it was, for some of us, the dream to be like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could stay here on Vancouver mm -hmm. Island and teach at a university. I moved to Ottawa to do my, my PhD program at the University of Ottawa. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had graduated in 2012 and I was doing a postdoc, um, a teaching postdoc at McMaster when I saw the posting um, <clears throat> along with all the other recent graduates with, uh, with Canadian history PhDs. At that point in my, in my career, I was just applying for everything. So of course I applied for it, but I kind of thought that it would be uh, amazing, um, but also that it was just really a long shot because uh. so, so many academic um, positions are really sought after. There's a lot of competition, there's you know hundreds of applicants. It's, I was just thinking there's no way that I would actually end up on Vancouver Island. <laughs> And, and yeah, so I was really, really excited when I came to do my interview and even more excited when they told me they would like to offer me this position. And that was in um, 2014 that I arrived. I remember applying for a job in English uh, at a very small, you know, liberal arts college in the States. I think this was when I kind of had the realization that this was going to be harder than I sort of had been told it was going to be. Um, yeah. So I graduated in 2011 and, you know, as you say, applied for everything getting nothing and then I, I remember I got a I got a short list not for an interview but at, I can't even remember the name of it, a tiny college like 2,000 students and yeah I didn't get an interview and, and I remember somehow hearing that there were sort of like 300 applicants or something and and you know so on the surface not a very prestigious or you know fine college or whatever but not not a big school and I remember thinking wow this is uh this is difficult <laughs> this is tough yeah yeah it, I, I, I'd still tell people that I feel like I won the lottery. <laughs> so there's a phrasing in, in the blurb for your presentation, which is coming up, which says this: uh, you're interested in the social and cultural influence of corporate entities, which I really like as a as a phrase. So what what about that in particular is something that kind of made you interested in, in that kind of history? Well, I think again, this kind of evolved as I was studying history as a graduate student. So. I did my master's on, uh, I looked at Britannia Beach, which uh, listeners may know, is a small, uh, was a copper mining community on the shores of Howe Sound, right? And now it's the location of the BC Mining Museum. And company towns fascinated me because they were these closed, controlled places where the employer uh, not only offered people employment, but also, you know, ran the store and the hospital and um, and and also rhetorically worked to, uh, in many cases, as, as, and this is, was the case with Britannia, um, really worked to build this positive um, image of themselves and use the residents kind of as examples of, of how uh, today we would say what good corporate citizens they were. <laughs> they didn't they didn't use that language. but um, and so this um, when I started looking at uh, when I started my PhD, 
and I was looking more at youth culture, I realized that I was in many ways being drawn to the same kinds of questions. How is it that this idea of the teenager as someone with a lot of uh, dispensable income, as someone who uh, spends their time at the mall, at the movies, um, you know, the, the way that leisure time and consumption has become really important to the teenage years in North American culture. And what role did, did um, companies, did corporate entities play in that? And, and in the process, they're really helping to shape how we think about what it means to be a teenager um, because there's certain experiences or um, we almost call them rites of passage that we, that we expect uh, kind of teenagers to have as a shared experience. Um, and those are not like, they're not biological. They're not determined right. by, by uh, the development of, of teenage brains or anything. They are very social and cultural. Do you know when the first, when, when the word teenager gets kind of comes into currency? I wonder if that's a, a recent <laughs> word. It's always tricky. I love, I love looking at like the etymology of words, but their history, where they came from. Um, <clears throat> so you do see the word uh, teenage used as an adjective to describe things like teenage pastimes. Um, and it's usually used again uh, in more kind of uh, less formal writing, right? In kind mm -hmm. of uh, casual um, settings. And you, you see uh, advertisers using it just very, very infrequently in the 1920s, um, but always as an adjective, right? So teenage pastimes. Yeah. yeah, not teenagers yeah. as, a, as a group, uh, as an identity, but more as, yeah. a, um, as a descriptor and yeah. always hyphenated. And usually with the, you know, because teen is, is an abbreviation of 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, so always with the apostrophe before it, Ooh, right? Like yeah, apostrophe, yeah. T-E-E-N, and then the hyphen, age, right? So it's really not until the 1940s um, and 50s that we see that word used in its noun form, right? As a teenager um, and teenagers um, more frequently. Hi there. This is Ben Henriquez from the music department at Vancouver Island University. And you are listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Coming to VIU, what I found so great are these opportunities to have conversations. It is really a privilege to bring your research to a broader audience. It's the human connection. It's full of music and celebration and color. A totally different worldview that is in so many ways so much healthier for the planet we all share. It's great to make those connections and it's great to be able to have those conversations. To create meaningful and positive change in communities. So why not use the arts to have a conversation about how the arts can have an impact? Did you ever see, so there's a, a documentary called The Corporation, which I think got a lot of play a while, and it's, it's actually quite old now, but 2003, I think it came out. And I've, I've used that in classes before and so on. But they have this really interesting moment where they do like a psychopath test of, um, so for, obviously it's a bit of a gimmick, right? Because it, a corporation is not a person, although legally there is that that 
that idea of them being legally persons, right? And then they come up with this diagnosis in that in that documentary that corporations are psychopaths. <laughs> and I think you know it, it, it's rhetorical, right? In a way, although you know there's obviously a lot of excesses and bad things and so on that come out of corporate culture. But I I wondered if I mean, my question that I wrote down is, are corporations really psychopaths? Are they really um, psychopaths? <laughs> psychopathic, I, maybe. Yeah. Well, that, when, when you talk about the, the, um, the Timothy Eaton Company Limited of Canada, um, it, if, if we're going to talk about, uh, about corporations as psychopaths, um, I think I'd want to bring Douglas Copeland into this and say all families are psychotic. <laughs> Because, um, I mean, from a business history perspective, the the Eaton's company uh, was always a private, family-run firm, and uh, and many people have said, you know, obviously over a hundred years, um, the changing um, context, economic, social, uh, means that. Ver- not a lot of businesses actually last that long or grow the way that it did. Um, but, but, you know, people who analyze um, business uh, management practices and things say that, you know, the company was essentially it, the, the family nature of it was a bit of its downfall, right? It was kind of run into the ground by um, Timothy Eaton's <laughs> descendants <laughs> Not so much his son, perhaps, but maybe his grandsons, um, and uh, and so I think um, from that perspective, there was something dysfunctional. Um, certainly, you know, business historians would say that that there was something dysfunctional happening there, and I think a lot of historians would argue that whether it's psychotic or not, corporate entities like Eaton's have a much their, their influence spreads much further than simply the point of purchase, right? So it's not, they're important for more reasons than just, oh, they were a really uh, big store. They sold a lot of things um, and and we went there and bought our stuff that we needed, right? They, yeah. they, they had a lot of, of, of influence, um, mm. both as, as kind of like the Eaton family, they were kind of, considered some people like they were almost treated like royalty in some Mm. ways right the way that when they attended events it was like oh you know lady eaton is here and um yeah so they had this they they were kind of like canadian royalty in that sense um but their their business practices because the stores were across the country um the way they operated and the way they advertised and the way they depicted uh people women, children, teenagers, um, these images infiltrated and, and shaped Canadian culture. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, I first moved to Canada in 2000 um, to do my MA and then came back again a few years later. But I remember Eaton's um, in Vancouver, which was where I was living. There was the big Eaton's downtown. And I didn't really know anything about its history or, or and I barely shopped there. But I mm-hmm. remember being impressed by or, or, or having a sense of, oh, this is a really big institution of some kind, or it's not just a, a store. Like it did seem like it, it kind of had the central place in the sit in the downtown. And I, I remember going to Toronto for a, for a trip that first year that I was, I'd moved there and the same thing, there was a big Eaton center. And so it, it really, yeah, you could sort of, even without much context, get a sense of 
oh, this is this big thing. Um, do you have any Eaton's experiences or memories of your, like, so you growing up as maybe as a teenager, was Eaton's something? Well, I can say that as a child, my parents, my mom liked shopping in department stores because she didn't really like shopping, <laughs> especially with three children, um, all that much. And of course, um, one of the benefits that department stores always touted was that you have everything in one yeah. place, right? So the children's department, you could you could find things for children of all mm. sizes and you could find outerwear and underwear and shoes and everything um, all in one place. <laughs> so I do remember shopping. I do remember kind of, you know, having to wait uh, while my mom helped my sister pick something or, you know, sh those kinds of shopping experiences kind of piling our coats under one of the clothing displays and, and just sitting there kind of hanging with the clothes hanging over your head. But by the time I was a teenager, the department store was not the place that I wanted to shop. <laughs> no, right. So it had changed by then. And, and but, so what was it for you then as a shopping place? Well, we definitely, I mean, I grew up in suburban Ontario and um, there weren't a lot of public um, leisure opportunities for kids my age. Um, so we did hang out at the mall a lot. The mall, right, right. Yeah, at the mall. Yeah. And um, when I wanted to go shopping, it was like more boutique kind of like sp specialized stores for teenagers, which existed, you know, even in the 60s and 70s. But I think their mm. their influence and, and their market share grew quite a bit. But I do remember attending the Eaton's Santa Claus Parade in Toronto every year um, until I was probably nine or ten. And that was a big um, marker of the changing seasons. Steve Penfold uh, wrote a book. It's called A Mile of Make-Believe. And it's uh, the making of the Santa Claus Parade. And it, it's mostly about Eaton's. But it also talks about how the success of the Eaton's Santa Claus Parade um, meant that Eaton's was able to help municipalities and civic organizations um, like Chambers of Commerce, for example, across um, the country to establish their own parades. So they really kind of seeded mm. um, the whole Santa Claus Parade um, phenomenon, essentially. Uh, for even after Eaton's didn't do the parade anymore, the fact that so many towns and cities continue to have parades is because of Eaton's and their influence. So, and we don't really think about that very mm. much anymore. But it's still there, right? Even as Eaton's itself is not gone. Right? It's gone. There's a certain way you want to live with a certain kind of style. There's places to go and people to meet and they make it all worthwhile. And Eaton's tries to do things the way you want us to. The Eaton's idea, the Eaton's idea, the Eaton's idea is all about you. Lovely. At Eaton's, we've got a pretty good idea of the clothes you want. Speaking of books, so I know you, you've been writing a book, I think, uh, this this year and, and probably for longer. How challenging is it to engage in that kind of scholarly activity while working in a relatively teaching-heavy 
institution for you? Um, like, it, this, this is a, a yeah, an interesting kind of balance that that we need to strike in some ways, right? So, how how is that experience being? I've been very um, fortunate. I applied for an assisted leave um, through the program that we have here, and so I was able to take last year and. Uh, not teach. Um, and uh, initially I thought, well, you know, this is my dissertation that I'm revising. So it, should, it shouldn't take that long. <laughs> um, but really, when you start to read something that you researched and wrote almost a decade ago, mm. um, well, a decade ago, actually, um, and you realize that you, your thinking has changed since then, which is a good thing, right? I mean, imagine yeah. if our thinking hadn't changed in a decade. Um, and, uh, and other people have written books and, and articles on this, on this topic of consumer culture in Canada. And you want to engage with that literature and the publisher and the peer reviewers obviously expect you to do that. So, um, so yeah, it did involve, and also now that all of our, our research dissertations are often available uh, digitally, um, so anyone can read my thesis, right? It, it's not a. Um, so why would that? Why would they publish it? Why would they publish yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so you need to be able to offer something different in your in your book proposal um, and manuscript. So I have uh, I have substantially changed <laughs> a lot of my thesis more than I thought I would, uh, and that was a process that that took uh, a lot longer than I thought, just even the rethinking what, what is this going to look like? And so I'm really grateful that I had the time and the space to do that. And now I'm just at the stage where it's just a tiny little uh, things that are left to do <laughs> that end up taking more time than I have during a regular term, right? Like things like, oh, this chapter's conclusion just doesn't quite capture what I'm trying to say. So it's, it's editing now. And then of course, once it, the, the challenge, I think, is that once a book is reviewed, so it's going to go to the publisher and then be reviewed. Once those reviews come back, um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can balance my teaching um, and my other work with getting those revisions done in a timely fashion. I'm fascinated in that process of like thesis to book, right? Because they are such different animals anyway. I mean, I, I remember, yeah. I haven't done that with mine. I remember finishing it and, and realizing that it wasn't a book. Like, it, like they're quite different animals. You know, oh, yeah. they, it's mm -hmm. not just a matter of like slapping a cover on it and then it goes out into the world, which I, I, I it's, it's, it's quite a transformation that would need to happen. And I think that in English, I mean, I'm sure there's other disciplines as well, but particularly in some of the humanities disciplines like uh, English and history, um, where we are not, um, I'm not presenting, you know, time sensitive right. <laughs> data, data that's going to, you know, uh, help solve the next pandemic or et cetera. It's, it is much more about um, crafting a compelling narrative mm. and, mm. and telling people, uh, telling people why this matters often takes a little bit more thought, right? And I mean, it matters when you're doing your dissertation because this is what's getting you your degree, but convincing a, a wider readership that this is an important topic and uh, yeah. And then getting rid of all that jargon and not jargon, but you know, <laughs> that big chapter at the beginning of your thesis that outlines right. all of your methods in great detail 
is not always something that, that publishers really care that much about. <laughs> You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Catherine Rollwagon for joining me in conversation. Technical production by Robin Davies. Music by Greg Bush. Colloquium series will be back in the spring with more fascinating presentations by VAU Arts and Humanities faculty. For more information, go to ah.viu.ca and click on Colloquium Series. You can also follow us on Twitter at VIU Talking Arts. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>